0: When I tell people I work in hospice, they almost always say the same thing. That must be so hard. What I think they mean is it must be so hard to be around death. After many years and visits, I can say that death often means release for my patients and being a part of it is frequently a blessing. When I agree with people who say working in hospice sounds hard, what I mean is Witnessing the suffering of others is hard. Seeing a patient in pain while nursing home staff ignore her is hard. Listening to families fight while someone lies next to them dying is hard. Visiting people for months, coming to love them, and then losing them is hard. This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul.
1: Good morning and welcome to Hospice Chaplaincy. This morning we are visiting with an author, Wrench and Bunce, who wrote a book called Love and Fear. Wren, I'm not going to tell him what you do and what you've been and who you are. I would like you to introduce yourself to us, please.
0: Good morning and thank you so much for this opportunity. I live in Silicon Valley. I'm a California native. I am an ordained Zen Buddhist priest and I've been working here as a hospice chaplain for 10 years. When I began the work, I was so surprised by what I saw. I began writing it down. This is the way that I process information. So the result of just writing down one story to say to myself and a few friends, do you it, is is this possible? Is this is this what happened? That's
1: resulted in this book. I read the, your introduction, and I just want to let people hear what you wrote about yourself at the very beginning. And I, it, just, it just told me that you are just like me. Let's begin with this, Zaren writes. I am not an angel. When I say Zen priest and chaplain, some people sit up a little straighter and feel they have have to explain why they haven't been to church lately or apologize if they swear. Please, I'm a product of the San Francisco art world in the psychedelic 60s and a recovering alcoholic addict whose motto was, I'll try anything twice. So I'm pretty unshockable. And I thought, what a wonderful introduction to hospice.
0: Good, thank you. I, you know, it's not unusual to read books in this area that that sound as if the people who wrote them are perfect. They never make mistakes. Uh, people should sit up straighter when they're around them. And I wanted it established right from the start. I'm I'm just another struggling human being. With quite a, with quite a background,
1: <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's it's obvious having read the rest of your introduction, all that of what you had to go through and live through, and and of course the experience with your mother when she died. I mean, I mm-hmm. I, I could feel your anger. I could feel the the just the sorrow about that. Would you mind kind yeah. of explaining that to our listeners as well?
0: I would. I'd be happy to. My mother, my mother called asking me to go to a doctor with her. This was very unusual. When I did go, that doctor told me that my mother was dying. She had a tumor in her stomach. I was in completely unknown territory, right? This is this is going to start to sound familiar, completely unknown territory. My mother fought death. She demanded every treatment possible I fumbled my way through, uh, <laughs> stayed with her in the hospital, and then went home with her when they sent her home on hospice. Felt so alone, no support. Just uh, a nurse once a week is all I remember. And this is back in eighty nine, ninety. Yeah. So I, I think hospice was a little different then. So stuff, stuff happened, family stuff, this, that, this, that. We were getting through it the night that she died. She she had been non responsive for some days, and the night that she died suddenly she started screaming, No, 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 no. Hmm. Uh... What I saw was I had just I had a I had a just beginning Buddhist practice and I thought what I was seeing was if we don't pay attention to death while we can, if we oppose death, when death appears, it's more likely that we're going to be terrified. And I think that's, I think that's what my mom was, was that's what was going on. After my mom died, uh, I think about 10 years after she died, I had been living what we call a normal life, um, putting clothes on my credit card, driving a secondhand Mercedes, I had long red fingernails and high heels. I was selling real estate, <laughs> which was which was here you know here's, a, here's news. it was unsatisfactory. I finally <laughs> decided <laughs> I decided with this um, as my as my Zen Buddhist practice had grown, I walked away from all that and moved to a monastery. And I lived in a Zen monastery, or uh, I was at San Francisco Zen Center all in all for seven years. And at the end of that time, when it was time for me to go back out into the world, and I had no money, and I wasn't going to go back to real estate, a friend suggested chaplaincy. And like a whole lot of other people, I thought, that sounds great. (laughs) I could just go around and, you know solve problems, and people would be happy. And so I began to train as a chaplain, and I was told that most of the work for chaplains in America is in hospice. And this, I think, is when the seed that was planted when I was with my mother at her death, and I saw what happens when death comes as a stranger, I Mm -hmm. think then that seed could blossom. Yes. Good. Yes, let's let's help people and and get the benefit of learning about death.
2: So, what steps did you take uh, after accepting this calling to do chaplaincy?
0: Um, While I was still living at Zen Center and on staff at Zen Center, I enrolled in a Buddhist chaplaincy course that's out of the Sati Center in Redwood City. You meet once a month. Um, it's it's really, really well done. I recommended it to all the young priests, whether they were interested in being chaplains or not. As a part of that, I had to do volunteer hours. So the safety net hospital in San Francisco is the one that needs volunteers, and I ended up working there. And that gave me, although although I didn't know what I was doing, Um, and the patients who I visited generously allowed me to make my mistakes and generously showed me a direction that we can go in this work. And that gave me a taste for it. And that is what led me to say, yes, this is what this, this is it. This is, I started to say, this is what I want to do. But let's say this is what I need to do. I was looking for something that would enable me to carry my vow into the world. Mm. And I knew I could work at Starbucks, I could be a priest. And this is the the thing that's important is is being a priest and carrying my vow, being in fact carried by vow. I can do that anywhere. Mm. I can I can hand you a latte as a priest. But I thought <laughs> I thought it would be easier and more obvious as a chaplain. <laughs> so I started to explore CPE, and I did one year of CPE, and this, of course, as they turn you loose on the patient in the hospital, this is where you learn what the possibilities are for a chaplain. Hmm.
1: I've got a question for you, Wren. Um... Because I uh, have, I am need to learn more about your tradition. When you say you take a vow and all of that that goes with that, what does that mean? I, I'm, I'm, I, I understand a calling from my from my vantage point of wh- how I feel called by God. So, how do you you're you're called? That's the only word I can use. How does that fit into this vow? And what is the vow that you uh, that you accepted?
0: So, are you ordained, Joe? Yes. yes, I am. So, whatever happened in your ordination ceremony, right? Yes. What do we, what do, we do? There's ritual and there's words. Exactly. Um, when, when, when I lived at Tassahara, we allowed guests in during the summer, and we do a full moon ceremony that's really beautiful. And the guests would see the sign on the office window, full moon ceremony tonight. And they'd come up to the zendo expecting something beautiful. And they would be um, invited to do 27 b- bows, full bows, forehead to the floor. And they would be invited to repeat after the officiant, um, I, I vow to do all good. I vow to refrain from harm. And I vow, here it comes, to save all beings. Uh-huh. So I, I like to think of all these wealthy people who were coming to a summer resort <laughs> taking that vow, and I, I wonder how they're doing. So, for, <laughs> so I, I, we, do, we do what's called Jukai, which is lay ordination, and then there's priest ordination, and then finally, there's what's called Dharma Transmission, and I've been through all of those gates, and each time as we take those vows, and that, to, to tell you those three vows is the tip of the iceberg,
3: mm-hmm.
0: but, but it's, is it different from a summer guest? Is it the same? It's the same words. My experience is that i thought i was agreeing i thought i was saying yep i will i'm yep yep i'm going to do that my experience is that actually what was happening was the vow took me and the vow drives me and i'm grateful for it i came i came to i came to spiritual practice cuz i needed guidance right yes. <laughs> yep this is this is guidance i like the image of a just a huge wave huge wave and here's a little person being carried by that wave and that's how I feel about my priest vow.
2: Mm. And that vow has carried you to hospice ministry.
0: It has indeed. It has. And it's and it's forced me to keep keep showing up for it. Try to you know, Zen is very much about meeting the moment as it is. So when I was When I was doing CPE in the hospital and just so, so scared every time I approached a patient, if I found one thing that seems to work, one set of words that evoked a response, thank you, chaplain, that helped. I'd try to, I'd try to say the same thing to the next person I met. And I learned that that, we can't work that way. Each person I meet is a unique individual. Mm-hmm. I have to try to find out, who are you? What What do you need? What can I do? So that, I think, too, that's also an example of the vow carrying me, the vow demanding, no, Ren, you don't get to slack off. What worked yesterday worked yesterday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: And uh, hospice ministry, like you know from experience, it it is hard. It is challenging. And I like what you wrote in your book. uh, (laughs) On page 35 on your book, you say, uh, people always tell me that hospice work must be hard. And I like the piece you wrote there. Could you read it for us? Why Why you agree with that statement? So on page 35,
0: it says, When I tell people I work in hospice, they almost always say the same thing. That must be so hard. What I think they mean is it must be so hard to be around death. After many years and visits, I can say that death often means release for my patients and being a part of it is frequently a blessing. When I agree with people who say working in hospice sounds hard, what I mean is Witnessing the suffering of others is hard. Seeing a patient in pain while nursing home staff ignore her is hard. Listening to families fight while someone lies next to them dying is hard. Visiting people for months, coming to love them, and then losing them is hard. Being powerless is hard, and my work reminds me that ultimately we're all dealing with forces much greater than we are. And many times it's clear. Those forces are beyond human control. A small number of my patients and family members say everything is God's will, and I'm happy for them, but I don't believe in that God. I believe in love and in each of us doing our best. And sometimes it seems that the things I see could be better, and I try to help when it's like that.
2: Like you read from your book on page 35, How Hard It Is to Do Hospice Ministry, and it's a hard process, but as healthcare professionals, as as caregivers, called to do this, uh, we have somehow to find balance to continue doing this. So, yeah. just for the sake of our listeners, what are some of the practices in your spiritual practice to help people find balance?
0: So, I still I still meditate extensively, but I'm back to vow. I'm back to Through studying the mind, learning that way of turning to the moment, Zen is a a vehicle for even though I'm afraid, and I put fear in the title of the book, and I'm not just talking about the patients and their family members with that word, but Zen is a way for uh, walking with that fear and actually using that fear to help me. Mm -hmm. So... It's what, you know, people people ask, can will I only serve Buddhists? No. Um, how can I serve Christians? What I do is I bring my practice to the visit, and then we're about what they believe. But 30 years of Zen meditation has given me, uh, yeah, that ability, even though life is hard and life is scary, and these days, more scary than ever, the ability to keep moving forward.
2: Mm. And and you do it so well. Um, mm. In your chapter, Finding Connections, uh, mm. I was intrigued by a story there <laughs> of this patient. Um, it looks like the daughter didn't want you to visit the dad because you were a Buddhist priest. Right. Um, but you had this deep, deep connection for this patient that it was hard for you to stay away tell us about what was it about that connection Uh, what is it about the patient perhaps that reminded you of you or what was going on there
0: it was i probably had been a hospice chaplain for a couple of years by that time and so I think I could say I was just beginning to find my way. This man had early onset Alzheimer's and you know that is so hard to witness. Uh-huh. A young a young person with dementia and and it is not unusual for us for staff members to turn away from such a thing. This man had been put into a facility by his wife And, and left, she left town. So what I saw was someone who was so isolated and I thought, oh, okay, here's a good use. And yes, it's hard, but I can do this and I'm going to, I'm going to visit this man and be company for him. The wife came back to town and we had a care conference and her daughter was on speakerphone. And this is when I learned that they were not just Christian, but they were evangelical. And during that CARE conference, the daughter's voice came out of the speakerphone, and she asked me if I accepted Christ as my Savior. And I I said, no, (laughs) no, as a matter of fact, I'm a Zen Buddhist. So eventually she objected. She wanted a Christian to visit her father. By the time that came out, as openly as that, I had a strong relationship with the man. So, what I was able to do was arrange for one of our Christian chaplains to visit him occasionally. But, you know, everything's geographic, they mm-hmm. have their own caseload. Mm-hmm. So, this was one objection from the start is what I saw was a man who was so, so isolated. And I had the time, I could go by frequently. If we had pulled me off the case, and substituted someone who most of their visits were 20 miles, 30 miles away, mm-hmm. he wouldn't have been seen so often. That was part of it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, that resulted. So much of what I do is instinct, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And we, I could simply say, my instinct said, really try to visit this guy. And what that resulted in is, is a lesson of connection that... What what I learned from that unfortunate, isolated young man with dementia has carried forward to hundreds of patients since that time, that awareness of connection.
1: Well, that became very apparent when I read that story as well about the connection that you make, and it has nothing to do with if you were evangelical or not, and that is what uh, the patient treasured mm. just because of how well he was able to communicate with you and tell you things that I'm sure he hasn't told other people, and just felt your your presence there, which I know when you're going through something like this, and he's changing almost every day because of the dementia. Yeah, and it's got to bring him a whole would have brought him I imagine an enormous amount of peace. And that's what more can you ask for
0: i I really hope so, and the story also points to such a sad misunderstanding because it I learned later that the daughter had told her mother, you know oh, he doesn't know the difference, just you know put him in a facility and get on with your life
3: but mm,
0: yeah. we know that's not what's happening. we know no. there's there's still a person there
3: exactly and
0: that yeah, yeah.
2: And you brought a quality of consistence and companionship, uh, which is Mm -hmm. also a powerful quality of hospice chaplaincy.
0: And I just felt so sorry for the guy. He was all alone.
1: Oh, very much so. Yeah. So speaking of this subject, and I'm sure the daughter would not come up to you and ask you a simple question like, the afterlife, you know, I'm talking about heaven here. What is your view on it? How do you explain this to folks who is a different tradition than yourself?
0: <laughs> well, I, um, one of my friends came to me recently. Her mother is in her 90s, and her mother has just started to have questions about what happens after we die. Mm. So, And she wondered if I could talk to her mother. I said, sure. So we had a couple of phone conversations, and I talked to her the way I talk to anyone else. I enjoyed the conversations very much. I love my friend, so I loved her mother. The third time I called her, Mrs. Wren, I'm just calling to check in and see how you're doing." And she said, "Oh, well, thank you very much. That was very nice of you, but you know i w- <laughs> I was looking for someone who had answers, so I don't think we need. <laughs> And' oh, that answers. Was my last. okay that's, so, so my friend's mother was one of my failures because all I say to anyone is, I don't know, I don't know here here's what a lot of people believe,-, uh-huh. but me, I don't know,
2: and what, that's not enough. What, that was not enough for her
0: in that case <laughs> fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, as we know, in hospice. What it's about, if you're talking to someone who is on hospice, if you're talking to someone and death is near, uh, that's very different, right? Things Uh are getting pretty real. Mm. What matters is what they believe.
1: Exactly. Mm.
0: So when we talk about different religions' beliefs about what happens after we die, the most the example that keeps coming up is the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church says here's what happens when we die. Mm-hmm. I I recently had a patient who this patient felt like such a gift. It felt like 10 years of doing this work of struggling, failing, learning, trying again. It felt like this patient was the reward seriously. Mm-hmm. He was a Catholic priest. Wow. He, he was young. He had cancer. We, when we first started, we started in the deep end. It was as if we had already known each other and we were just picking up the conversation. What a blessing. So I had a chance to ask him. I said, you know, I meet old Catholic ladies and they say God is guiding everything. And they say, when they die they're going to go to heaven and be with jesus is is that you're a priest is that what you believe and he just laughed he laughed at me he shook his head he didn't need to he didn't need to force his beliefs on me hmm. he did speak later of eternal rest he was looking forward to eternal rest which is pretty different from sitting in a rocking chair on a big front porch in heaven What I want to say is that even though this man didn't have that surety, he had the best death I have seen because he was never afraid. We're all afraid. Uh, You know, what I've come to learn is what we're afraid of is change. Uh, people aren't so much afraid of death as, as nearly as I can understand. They're afraid of change, and death is the biggest change of all. He was never afraid. He went through a lot of pain. He had a lot of difficulties. And just kept he just kept loving right up to his final breath. He was still loving and blessing us all. What a reward to see a thing like that, right? That's the kind of death I want,
2: right? That's a good death. That's a good death. We'll take a little break and we'll be right back.
1: Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com.
2: I'm Sollar and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Uh, Rensen, uh, in your book, you talk about uh, being a hospice chaplain as bearing witness to people's suffering. Yeah. And 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 that is really really deep. I'd not even looked at it that way. Could you explain more?
0: The question is, what is help? Mm-hmm. Now I told you before we started recording, I just adopted a cat. I adopted a ten-year-old cat. Um, his former owner was a patient on our service, and she died. So this cat is living here, and. He's having a difficult adjustment and I am too. (laughs) His difficulties have become my difficulties. Mm. People, people are giving me advice. It is such a teaching on what is help. If, if I tell you that this cat has been in my apartment for four days and he's having, he's not eating, he's peeing here and there. Last night, your friend said, have you tried tuna and And I thought, you know, yeah, yeah, that occurred to me i've I've heard that cats like tuna, and I've tried tuna. So that's a kind of helping that I think is done for the comfort of the person who's offering the help. There's another kind of help that we learn in chaplaincy, and that's the help of witnessing, of walking alongside of manifesting that connection letting people remember that they're not alone not because i'm sitting me 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 sitting in the chair next to them but because we're never alone because we're always connected it's it's witnessing is the art of saying i see you mm. i hear you even if the person you're with is bedbound with dementia, I see you. Mm. I see you. I think you know, that's all I wanted my friend to say. I didn't want her to act as if I never heard about tuna after some very difficult days with this disturbed cat. What did I want? I wanted her to say, that sounds hard. That's all.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And I do believe, you know, a little plug for Zen practice, I do think that this, our primary practice of seated meditation is helpful in this regard of being able to just witness, witness suffering, not turn away from suffering.
1: Hmm. Interesting story I have. Similar to what you're talking about, but it's a, a real life hospice story. I uh, happened to be calling uh, a family member after their loved one had died. This, uh, this mother had lived in the home with her daughter wow. for like three, four, five wow. years, dealing with dementia the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the last two or three years, uh, nonverbal. And she took care of her. And I just, I was just in yeah. awe of her strength. And I said, how did you do it? Because if you You hear this, I hear the stories of those like that young man that we talked about earlier, whose wife just went off and did something else to get away from it because of whatever reason.
0: Yeah.
1: And so I said to this this woman, I said, So how was it that you were able? I mean, I, I just commend you. I just think you did wonderfully. How did you do this with your with your mom? Can you explain that to me so maybe I can learn from that? Yeah. And she said, you know, no matter what was there, no matter what was going on or not going on, I remembered that my mom had a soul and I was connected yeah. to it. Yeah. I mean, it can still bring tears to my eyes because that is the ultimate to me to understanding when you're dealing like that situation. Because it's so easy just to say, I know this person is going to die. Uh, I'll just, you know, eliminate them, try to eliminate them from my mind, which you can't do anyway.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which is looking after our own comfort and not theirs.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. We but this,
0: really we we have to learn to put our comfort aside. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And she <laughs> did. That happens. was the interesting thing that I felt that she did, just to be with, just so that she could be with her mother because she had that gift
3: yeah. at that time. Yeah.
1: So it speaks a lot of what you say that you need to do with your practice with your patients, which I think is awesome. Mm-hmm.
2: I think people struggle. Showing- I think people struggle with bearing witness uh, to someone's pain is because I think they they want to fix it. It's hard to see someone in pain or in some kind of suffering and they don't have a solution for it. So it becomes really hard, just like your friend said. Do, do do the tuna you know? yeah.
0: <laughs> have you tried tuna have you, have, have you, have you tried chemo <laughs> yeah we tried chemo and you know another piece of this mm. is that in this country we we treat death as a crisis yep. so right not at all unusual for it'll be say we have a case where Someone has been caring for a parent at home. And then a sibling comes from out of town when that parent goes on hospice. Mm. And that sibling <laughs> is like, we should try chemo. We should try physical therapy. What's going on here? Oh, no, this is just death. This is just, as one of my early teachers, Jack Cornfield, said, when, when we're born, we're issued a return ticket. But somehow this became um, hidden in America. Uh, Death was a failing. So Mm -hmm. I think a huge part of what we can do is to help people, help them to bring their minds around to the fact that, well, what's happening here, This this is natural. In fact, this is what we're all promised. Let's learn something. Let's make sure this is comfortable instead of <laughs> instead of get a physical therapist in here
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. well that's along the same line of when you uh, which even to this day I will talk to a family and we're trying here to encourage and to help your loved one have a good death and they what's well, what's a good death and they can't even they only think of death as darkness and and sorrow and yeah. and not that it can be something of Great peace and great understanding, especially yeah, like when you... my
0: mom. They start screaming. Yeah, that's yeah. right.
1: Oh, that's right. That was horrific when I read that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, so let's let's pay attention to it now while we still can. Yeah.
1: Part of your book, you started talking about something that we don't have here in the Midwest, and or at least that I don't know if they've even started considering it, and that's called assisted death. Yeah. How how has that changed at all, your practice, or how did, I mean.
0: It's heavy. It is gonna,
1: heavy. I could tell by the book, yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think um, it's the End of Life Option Act has been in effect here in California, I think it's four years now long enough that it's that it's become routine um there are a lot of regulations around the law i think that it was modeled on oregon Mm -hmm. and when the law came into effect here it had been the practice in oregon for i think 10 years so we had we had a lot of ability to learn from the way they had done it a patient makes a request to a doctor They say, I want to get the drugs that will end my life. They have to talk to a second doctor. There's a two-week waiting period. An important part of it is that they have to be mentally competent. They have to be physically able to hold the glass that's going to contain the lethal medication. At that time, the doctor says, do you understand what this is going to do? And they have to be able to say, I understand that this is going to end my life. When it's done well, I mean, we all have seen hard deaths. We recently used used the phrase, you know, a good death. We do our best, but sometimes the pain doesn't seem to be reachable by the drugs we have. In many cases, people use the End of Life Option Act um, not for physical reasons so much as existential reasons. They've become such a burden. Um, They've lost all agency in their own life. Life itself has become too difficult. So those cases obviously are trickier. I have been present. When I don't know, I don't know what the count is at that point, but I've, but I have been able to be present when people have taken the meds and I've sat and watched as life ended. In most cases, it's been joyous. In most cases, she's released. We helped. That's great. Not always, Mm -hmm. right? As i mm. as I say so often in my work, there are no straight lines in nature. everything is bobbing up and down so and and I will even in a good case, I'll leave that house and go back to my car just thinking, "Wow, what wow, I didn't know that's what we did, but that's what we do mm. and as I as I say in my book, I come from a I come from a family where um, I've directly experienced the number of suicides, so I had to think when the law came into effect. What's the difference?
1: Yeah.
0: Well, what? And and the difference is that in this sort of death, that person is not alone. Again, mm. that person is witnessed. Is accompanied. Mm. That that is a death that brings comfort. Um. A suicide, someone going off alone with a shotgun, that's the polar opposite of
2: that. Mm. Over the years I've worked in hospice, I've seen um, a couple of uh, suicides. In one yeah. instance, somebody just shot himself. He could not handle the existential despair that yeah. came with you know, losing all the functions and just being there. So he took a gun and shot himself. So I think this option eliminates that kind of suffering.
0: Perfect example, exactly. but yeah it's <laughs> it is it is heavy it is it, of uh-huh. course in our company it's um, any anyone, any nurse chaplain, social worker can decline to be involved in those cases. And as it happens, I've been the chaplain who's taken most of them.
2: Mm. You yeah. feel comfortable with that?
0: No. Oh no! No. <laughs> there's that. There's that word again. Mm. <laughs> Comfort. No. 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 But but helping. Absolutely. Especially because we so often witness. That, you know how like the last two weeks of life can be so difficult for everyone? Mm-hmm. So having witnessed that so many times, if I've met someone who wants to end before that starts, yeah, yeah, I get that. Mm. But am I comfortable? No.
2: In your book, you spoke about how, you know, the the, the, the loss of self. You know, and that happens a lot with hospice patients, you know the, um, the struggle with that sense of self, uh, that sense of personhood that you know is, uh, dies probably because of the terminal diagnosis. Is, could you talk more about that?
0: The obvious example is with dementia. Hmm. What, what What is it when a person can't remember? their own name. That's the obvious example, but a more subtle example that we see is the loss of control that happens. So even if even if the terminal diagnosis is not dementia, I you know, I had lymphoma last year. I was diagnosed with lymphoma. Now I'm a very informed person. I have my advanced directives, I've talked it out, I know what I want. What I learned was when I became a part of the medical system, nobody asked. When I became a part of the medical system, I was just swept along. I lost all control of my life, and I had a very small cancer. Mm. That's a way of feeling how it is when you've been successful all your life. You've had a career. You've had a family. You have a beautiful home. And now, gee, you can't walk anymore, you can't see very well, you certainly can't drive your car. And people aren't regarding your opinions as much. There's that that more subtle and perhaps more degrading loss of self that happens as we age and as sickness arrives. When I first was working in the hospital, when I was a CPE student and I was visiting patients, I was, I thought people expected me to be a Christian. So Mm. I talked about God all the time. I sort of came to, I saw what I was doing. I saw that was a mistake. That was not being authentic. I had to stop and think about what do I mean when I say God? Do I believe in God? Yes. Do Buddhists believe in God? Not that God, not that external force. So I had to come to my own understanding of God. What I believe in is love. The most important lesson I've received in visiting hundreds and hundreds of dying people is that There's nothing more important than love. I wish there were a more profound way of saying it. But the love that we find, the love that we manifest, the love that we witness, this is the, we're looking for safety, aren't we? We're looking Mm. for a place to stand, and love is that place. Yeah. Thank
2: you for sharing that. How can our listeners get a hold of you?
0: I have a website, com. My book is on Amazon. The book is called Love and Fear. They can just put me in Google. <laughs> They'll find me.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: thank you so much, guys. The Ran. hour, yeah. you, you know, you you really, you took good care of me in this conversation. I appreciate it.
2: Well, Ren, thank you. Thank you, God God Ren. Okay, guys. Peace God bless you. you. Mm. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye that was ranchin Barnes, the author of love and fear stories from a hospice chaplain thank you for listening
3: this podcast
1: was recorded at audio hive podcasting in jolia illinois audio hive podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording editing and you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.